Well, we're in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to read from verse 6. So let's read and see what God's Word has to say to us. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you indeed for your word. Thank you for teaching and training and correcting and rebuking us through it. Thank you that it penetrates deep into our hearts. It teaches us things that we should know and helps us know the things that we should do. So we pray you would help us by your spirit in these very things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, The Lord of the Rings is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's famous story about an unlikely group of characters working together to destroy a ring that holds a strange and malevolent power. Um, the ring is precious to whoever has it. That's what they call it, my precious. I'm not going to do the creepy golem voice, although you want me to. Um, they never want to give it away, though, these people. They, they absolutely freak out if they lose it, which serves to show in Tolkien's story that the ring is also master of whoever has it. While they're in possession of it, really it is in possession of them. Now the ring and token story illustrates something of the power that money can have on us. Money can easily become everyone's precious, magnetizing those who love it, corrupting those who keep it, devastating those who lose it. And that's really what's happened, I guess, in our nation. A recent sociological study has looked at the impact of increasing wealth, even in the area of charitable giving. Between 1959 and 2019, household income in the UK increased exponentially, but charitable giving didn't. Personal consumption did very much trending along the same line as our uh, income. But the more people earned, the more people spent on themselves. 
the more people gained, the less people gave. Now, you'd expect a different story in the church, right? Well, a U.S. study called Pass the Plate traced similar trends, where it basically concluded that giving still feels like loss to people, even in the church. It can show that people are afraid to give because they worry that God won't provide for them. Or that people are reluctant to give because in their heart of hearts, they just want to spend it on themselves. Worry. Greed. Two things that very much get in the way of this grace of giving, as the Apostle Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, I wonder if those two things go through your mind when it comes to the idea of giving, of being generous in whatever sphere. But in Christian giving in particular, worry. Are we afraid that God won't quite provide for us? Do we think, well, I'm already struggling to make ends meet here. I'm not really sure what I should do. Or do we feel like in our heart of hearts, actually, I quite like the things that money can buy me. The kind of lifestyle that I can afford. And I'm really not that up for letting any of that go. Well, if they do, uh, if any of those uh, descriptions describe us, this passage is a great help to us because it encourages us to see giving for what it truly is. It's a blessing, really. It it is a service to share in, even something that that does eternal good. Remember the context, Paul is writing to a very specific church in Corinth, about a very specific collection for the relief of the poor and picked on churches in Judea, that area around Jerusalem. And Paul writes to these guys because at first, last year, the desire was there to give, but so it seems was there an issue regarding reluctance, my precious. The collection in Paul's mind, therefore, was a bit of a litmus test for their love for God proof of their repentance for their treatment of him, and proof, really, of their grasp of the gospel. Remember a couple of weeks ago, if you get grace, you give. That's what Paul's checking. But this passage, I think, does the same for us. And very simply, it just lays out three things for us that I want to work through briefly with us. God wants us to see ourselves as sores. God wants us to see him as a supplier, and God wants us to see giving as a service. Soar, supplier, service. That's the roadmap. So let's look at point one, a soar. God wants us to see ourselves as soars. That's what we see from verses six and seven. Paul takes the readers in Colossae, uh, in uh, Corinth, sorry, and us into a field for a lesson on gospel economics. And picture yourself in a field, if you like. It's vast. The weeds have been cleared. The ground's been prepared and furrowed. You stand there with this bag over your shoulder, absolutely heavy with seeds. And what do you want from that field that's before you? What does any farmer want from that land? Well, simple, really. You want a harvest. You want produce. You want exponential gain that puts food on your table, money on your pocket, and more seeds to sow for the year after. Now, if that is what you want, how do you think you should sow your seed? Well, I guess there's a couple of ways you could do it. I mean, you could be 
utterly meticulous and start drawing out lines, making little holes, planting one seed at a time as you go, spacing them apart, 1.2 centimeters between every seed, whatever way you want to do it. Or you could just stick that thing called a hand into that bag, that God-made scoop, and broadcast it. That's how they did it in those days. They scooped and they broadcast. Plenty of seed gave you the greater likelihood of a plentiful harvest. And that is the, prin the simple principle that Paul's outlining in verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you only put out a wee drop of seed, you're going to get a small harvest. But whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Gen can't even say that word. Uh, generously. I better get that right. I've got to say it quite a few times today. <laughs> Broadcast it. And what do you get? A great harvest. Now, the same applies in gospel giving. That's what Paul's talking about. He wants the Corinthians and us to think about the harvest that we want to see when it comes to gospel giving and invest accordingly. He's encouraging us to give with a harvest in mind. Now, when it comes to Christian giving, what kind of harvest do you anticipate? What kind of harvest would you love to see? Well, what does Paul want to see? There are two things he mentions in this passage, actually. There is immediate good and eternal good. In this text, the immediate good is the provision of um, of food, of the means to live for these brothers and sisters in the churches in Judea. It was not only that, of course, by feeding them and by blessing them with money so that they can survive, the churches in Corinth and Macedonia and these places around Greece were basically sustaining a gospel witness in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. The practical goal is to put food on, but actually it's a it demonstrates as well a deep sense of solidarity with these brothers and sisters. We looked at that last week. But ultimately, this collection would inspire these poor and picked on believers to testify about Jesus in the midst of their poverty and their persecution. I mean, think about what this is like in, in what was a very separate and segregated part of the world. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews did not, they mixed, but there was not real support, fellowship, if you like. But imagine someone who's got bread on their table in Jerusalem, or they go out and they say, I'd like to buy three loaves of bread, please. And the person knows they've not been in for weeks. Why are you here? What's going on? I've got to receive a generous gift from a church in Corinth. Now, that sounds meaningless to us, but it would have floored them back then because the Greeks didn't help in that way. But it's an expression of gospel solidarity and their sowing, the Corinthian sowing of this generous deed achieves something that glorifies God. Well, it not only meets this immediate good, it meets an eternal good. This act of giving reaps a harvest, as we look down at verse 9, a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. That's an incredible thing. It references, Paul references Psalm 120, uh, 112 that Lindsay read to us earlier on, which is basically a psalm about a believer who delights in God is blessed by God and gives evidence of that by blessing everyone around him. And the psalm tells us that the benefits of, the, of that generosity actually last forever. 
forever. Now, this is a harvest of righteousness that actually does eternal good then. So in what way are we giving ourselves, our time, our energy, our money? Are we giving those things in a way that reaps eternal good, eternal glory for God? Well, this is what God is doing as he blesses us. He blesses us to give and multiplies the impact of this giving in ways even that we didn't anticipate. He is that kind to us. So do we give with the harvest in mind? I mean, if the harvest we reap corresponds to the gifts that we give, what immediate good would we expect to see in the lives of those we bless? Think about that. What eternal good could we see? Souls saved. Churches built up in the gospel. God's word being preached. People's needs being met in Christian love and kindness. Paul wants us to see in regard to all of that, if we give a little, we can do a little good. And that would be great. But if we give generously, we can do a lot more and do the kind of stuff that we will not regret when it comes to the new heaven and new earth. Now, Paul's point is very simple when he's speaking to the Corinthians. He's saying to them, the latter looks a lot more like God's generosity. The latter, Paul says, pleases God. And so he says, don't just give in anticipation of the harvest. Give in order to please God. And we should give. Verse 7, what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, even as he's talking about generous giving, broadcasting of these gifts, he's saying, okay, that doesn't mean spend every single thing that you've got and make yourself destitute. Do it with careful thought, what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, you know, not like you're being dragged, like a child being dragged to the dentist. Uh, not under compulsion, you know, not like a thief going to jail, but cheerfully. The word in Greek actually is hilaron, which, from which we get our root word hilarious. Now, that's not saying you should just burst out laughing every time you give a gift. That would be a little bit weird. Um, although, but it does mean that you should be joyful in your heart at the, give, the act of giving. Um, in the year 2000, I was in Rwanda for a summer mission thing. And I remember visiting this church service. Um, which lasted for five hours, by the way. It was a long church service. The first guy finished the sermon and the second guy got up and get started his. It was outstanding. But I still remember the offering. Like, as soon as it started, you know, they said they were going to take up the offering. I was looking for a bag to go around. You know, generally they're velveteen. They look kind of pretty with little handles on them. Not here. No, there was a big bucket up the front and people just got up and they danced. Those Africans can move, guys. Like my body and my, I'm just, I just don't have that in my DNA. But the thing that struck me most about it all is their delight. They were rejoicing in the giving of their gift. Now, I'm not saying we should make that policy in Charlotte Chapel. You know, if you're, if you're going to make a donation in the gift box, you know, we're, we're not going to judge you if you dance up to it. But the whole point is we should be cheerful in our giving and give 
in order to please the Lord because God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. So let's give with God's pleasure in mind. Let that kind of generous giving kind of reset us if we are prone to be reluctant in our giving or afraid to give. It may reveal to us if we are sad about being generous, it may reveal that we are greedy and living to please ourselves. Let's check our hearts on this. It may be that we're stingy because we're afraid. We're not quite sure we can trust God to provide for us. We may be like the guy Spurgeon talked about back in the 19th century when he said, this man gives as if he were parting with his blood. His fingers tremble and linger long over the shilling. One wonders that the queen's image is left upon it when it has been held with such pressure. <laughs> well, as we think about this, let's give generously with the eternal harvest in mind, the immediate good that we can do, and give in order to please God. And in truly, I mean, if the love of God is the greatest thing that we can know, as Psalm 63 says, it's better than life itself, then surely it's right for us to live to please him in every way, not ourselves. It's a challenge, isn't it? The second thing we've seen, the first thing we've seen is that God wants us to see ourselves as sores. But to encourage us all the more, we see in point two that God wants us to see him as a supplier. This is verses 8 to 11. Now, God wants us to give with the knowledge of his ability in mind. That's what it says, doesn't it? Verse 8, God is able. God is able. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What an incredible thing to reflect on. God is able to supply you with everything you need to give. Therefore, giving doesn't need to be a worry for us. This is God's way of destroying any sense of reluctance in us. It tells us that he blesses us. And it tells us why he blesses us. It's so we will give. All things, all times, all we have to all good works. He repeats the same thing in verse 11. God will enrich you in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. The point here that Paul is trying to drive home in terms of the connection with generosity is that God supplies everything you have. I mean, what do you have that God has not already given you? God is able to supply what we need in order to be generous, in order to do immediate good, in order to do eternal good that brings him glory. And when it comes to his supply, there actually is no limit to it. He's sovereign over it all. He can give you what he can give you. And he expects us to be generous out of what he has given us. And that's what takes away this fear in giving. And it also takes away any notion of greed because God supplies everything we need to do eternal good to others. 
he says this again. Yes, we already dealt with it in the first point, but he says it again in this second. This is God's way of providing for all. And how many times, even in your own experience, has God provided just what you need through the generosity of others? When we were in uh, Bible college, um, there was one day when I was coming back up from Bible college in Glasgow to where we lived in Dundee, and I was feeling a little bit down because I had just paid the first installment of fees to the university for the, for the college degree. And uh, I was thinking, well, this is, this is going to be tight this month, actually, maybe for the next three months or something like that. I had to pay out about £525 that day. And then when I got home, I met um, my wife, Catherine, and her mum at the train station in Dundee. And they were all chirpy and cheery. I was feeling a bit down and so on. And uh, just halfway through the journey, said, oh, here, have a look at this. Something came through the post. Well, two things came through. A tax rebate for £25, um, which was kind. And a gift from a loving, kind relative who prays for us all the time still of 500 pounds to meet the exact amount. Like how many times has God met our needs in precisely the way that he knows it needs to be met? As God is able to supply everything we need, even to be generous and kind to others. Which tells us that everything that God has given us is just laced with opportunity. This is the very same principle that he spoke about, Paul spoke about in chapter one in regards to our suffering. Like every ounce of suffering has ministry potential. God can take the comfort that, you can take the comfort that God has given you and channel it to other people so that they might find comfort in God all through the way that you've been comforted. The same goes with these gifts. God has supplied you with everything you need in order to live and given you enough that you can be generous towards others so that well, they can praise God for your generosity. It's the way it works. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be employed in God's salvation plan in this way. And that's what Paul does here in verses 10 and 11. He applies this principle to the Corinthians by outlining what God does and why God does it. So what does he do? He supplies and increases what you sow. Well, that's handy because we're giving it away. And he enlarges the harvest of your righteousness. Why, verse 11? So you can be generous, so he can be praised. It's dead simple. Now, what difference does it make to give knowing that God supplies us with what we need to be generous? He's already supplied us with the money, time, resources to steward. The question is, what are we doing with what he's given us? The mistake the thing that shows that money might be too precious to us is for us to think, well, how much can I keep? But the gospel makes us say, how much can I give? And perhaps one of the practical applications of this passage tonight, and really over the last three weeks, is to have a fresh look at our finances. Have a fresh look at our calendars. I mean, are we really doing all that we can with all that God has given us to help more people know about Jesus and believe in him. That's what it's all about. And can we buck the trend that I mentioned in the research at the start? I mean, our level of luxury or 
spending does not need to increase at the same rate as our income. I read this week of John Wesley who had said that when you have what you need, fix your purpose to gain no more. If more comes, let it go. Why spend in a way that God will surely forgive but could have rewarded? Every pound you put into the earthly bank is sunk. It brings no interest above. But every pound put into the bank of heaven will bring glorious interest for eternity. Now, let me be clear. The disclaimer here is we are not preaching a prosperity gospel here. This is not give and you'll have health and wealth. That's definitely not that. This is just saying God's already given you what he has given you in order for you to steward it. It's not yours. It's his already. The question is, what are we doing with these things? And how can we do more eternal good for his glory by giving generously? It also encourages, I hope, a sense of ambition in our giving. As a church, what are we eager to see and do? I mean, are we content with empty seats? Are we content to have planted Christchurch Queensferry, which we will do shortly in a couple of weeks' time? Or do we want to do more? Well, I know in this church's heart, we definitely want to do more. Well, let's have this strong sense of the ability of God. The God who can do all things, provide all things, and let our ambition match. Let us be inspired by who he is and the promises he makes, not the hindrances, the hurdles, the weaknesses that we see. God is able, and he wants us to see him as supplier. That was point two. Point three, God wants us then to see our giving as service. Um, God wants us to serve and to sow with his glory in mind. And when you look at verses 12 to 14, uh, in this final section here, you've got this generosity of the Corinthians having a, having a triple effect. Verse 12a, provision, practically meeting the needs of the Judean churches. We've talked about that. Food and table, freedom from worry. 12b, praise, provision results in many expressions of thanks to God. This is what this section is really all about. Verse 13, where it says that people praise God because, people will praise God because of the obedience of the Corinthians and their giving. It is proof that they've put their money where their mouth is. You might say, the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God, which he's mentioned also in verse 11, thanksgiving to God. It's kind of God to give us some indicators that should serve us in our assurance. Be confident in our faith. Confident in we, as we encourage one another in that faith too. And generosity is one of these things. We looked at this last week. Generosity can prove your faith in Christ to others. It can show that money isn't your God's, but God is. 
And generosity, without question, in all things, not just money I'm saying, in all things, will accompany someone's confession of the, of the gospel. Because if you get who Christ is, then you give yourself. You no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you. I mean, isn't this what we see in that wonderful biblical example of Zacchaeus himself in Luke 19? The one who was financially rich but spiritually bankrupt, absolutely robbing and pilfering and overtaxing people to his own greed until he met Jesus. And then all of a sudden, meeting Jesus, he went from being a taker to being a giver. Why? Well, Jesus himself explained salvation has come to this house he was talking about himself jesus had met zacchaeus zacchaeus met jesus became convicted of his sin and instantly gave away committed to giving generously and his giving was an indication of the grace that he had received the same goes for each and every one of us if the, I guess you could say, if you look at this, that if, the, if, the, if you're giving, but there is a lack of confession of Christ, you're merely a philanthropist. If the generosity is lacking, it may be that you may not be a believer or that you're struggling with idolatry. That needs a bit more conversation to try and figure that out. But they praise God. People who are recipients of the kindness of others, the generosity of others, praise God for the way in which they see the gospel working in people's lives. And they praise God for the provision that he offers. They are so thankful. Thankfulness is the mark of the godly. Nobody likes ingratitude. But the godly who realize that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shift and shadow, so that means he's always able, they'll praise him, they'll thank him, and they'll be glad for your generosity. But there's also the partnership. Provision, proof, partnership, verse 14. Those who receive such kindness, those who receive generous gifts reciprocate in love nothing else, nothing needs to come back but they can love verse 14 and in their prayers for you their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace god has given you their hearts go out to you bonds are formed god is praised it's down to the surpassing grace that god has given this grace of giving is indeed a gift. Paul said so throughout chapters 8 and 9. It's an act of service. It is a privilege. It is a gift to give. And that's why the encouragement is there to be generous. It is a service. It is a service that brings what we should all want above all things. And that is glory to God. I mean, what a way to spend your money. What a way to spend your lives. Living and serving and giving in a way that makes Jesus look great in the eyes of other people. 
who, when they see your generosity, they see his and respond, thank you, Lord. Now, the immediate application in this, then, I guess, is what does this act of service or giving for God's glory say about our greeds or our fear? Well, it obliterates it. Who you are and what you have is not about you. It's about God. It's about his glory. But it also encourages us to ask how we might then revisit our stewardship. What can we do to take things up a level? You know, is our spending marked by Christian generosity? What does our giving say about what makes us most happy? Does our spending suggest that we are, well, collecting for this life? And are we giving in a way that it's explicitly supporting the spread of the gospel? These are all questions for us to consider. It also calls on us to think about what kind of partnerships might benefit from our kindness. How might God provide for others through us? Who should I be generous towards, you might be asking? Well, the church already has a list of organizations that you can be generous towards. But one of the things that I rejoice in, in giving to the church at Charlotte Chapel, is that you can give gifts that then are basically, as you've seen, the church family approves the budget at our, our, our church meeting. That gift is spread to all sorts of different areas of church life, from supporting gospel ministry here in Edinburgh, to running ministries that proclaim the gospel and meet particular needs, to, well, proclaiming the gospel in places beyond our own nation, in nations overseas. There's a wide range of things, but one of the ways that you can practice generosity most quickly and most effectively, even for the glory of Jesus, is to think about who is in your group of friends. Who among your friends do you see in need in some way? How might God have supplied you with what you have in order to meet their needs and bring glory to him? And how might an act of generosity serve to open an unbeliever's eyes to the gospel? Friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, our ultimate goal in all of this is to give God glory because he's glorious. High above all, there is no one like him. And we would love for you to know him. And we give, we serve, we do what we do in order to help one another be better at reaching you, to encourage you to see God for who he is in the true light of what his word says so that you can see how much he loves, so that you can see how much he's given for you, so that you yourself might see that, that you can count everything else as rubbish and as loss to take hold of the faith that he, this grace, this gift of salvation that he holds out to you and say, it's worth it. There's no one better nothing better.
That's what the Apostle Paul encourages us all to see. At the end, in verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, what is this indescribable gift? Well, some would say it's just the gift of giving. To use what he's provided to meet practical and spiritual needs in a way that brings us joy and brings him glory. Thank him for the grace of giving. Well, there's a wee problem with that because he's just, he's called this gift indescribable and yet he's just described giving in two chapters. No, the indescribable gift is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the indescribably generous gift of heaven given for our salvation as John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And here's why. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why Paul is thankful. That's why this gift of salvation is so incredible. This gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, so indescribable. No words can explain how thankful and grateful and relieved you are that Jesus died for your sin. And took away from you the judgment that you deserved and in that place gave you righteousness. A right standing with God. A not guilty verdict in his court. And a place with him in heaven. It's indescribable. I didn't deserve it. None of us do. It is a grace that he has given. A grace he wants us to respond to. By living not for ourselves. But for him. Let every aspect of our life show proof of that. And may we rejoice at the eternal good that's done because of that. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you indeed for your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was love that caused you to send him into this world to be our savior and to give his life for us. What a generous gift he was to us. And we praise you for this provision of the righteousness that we now know, the blessings that we now have, all undeserved but also gratefully received, all welling up in praise and prayer to you, our glorious God and King. Lord, may we learn the lessons of this text that we might multiply these same thanksgivings and praises and hallelujahs in the mouths of many, many more whose hearts have received your gift. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's stand.